All right, well, today, the reason I wanted to kind of tell my story was for a couple of reasons. One, uh, we're going to be off next week. So for everyone who normally comes, we're going to be off next week for Thanksgiving break. And we just finished the Jonah series. And so I did not want to start a brand new series of the Bible just to have a week week off. And so I was thinking, I was like, well, let's, let's just do a bit of a one-off lesson and I've been telling you all for years that I would actually kind of tell my story, and I just realized I never have to this group. And given I teach you every week, it's probably important you hear it at some point. So uh, if you don't mind, I'm just going to kind of uh, give you a rundown of, of my story, and I hope it gives you a little bit better perspective as to uh, why in the world I'm here, to tell you the truth, and, 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 uh, and, and why I, I, I might actually uh, uh, just really like you guys. So, uh, uh, so anyway, we'll, we'll talk about this. So I want to kick off, whenever I was in my 20s, uh, I actually got my education. I, I, got, I went to Houston and got my MBA from Rice University. And, and the reason I bring that up is because one of the very first things they made us do at Rice was they made us write our obituary. <laughs> and I thought that was the most interesting exercise. And I, really, and I really took it seriously. The idea was you write your obituary you write what you want to be known for, what you want them to say at your funeral, and then you plan backwards, right? And so we, we, were, we were planning our business careers based on what, they wanted to, what you wanted people to say in your obituary. And I, got, I, took, this, I took this exercise very, very seriously. I, I was already in the workforce. I was working in the oil and gas business at the time, uh, was doing this at night, and I took this exercise seriously. And what was interesting is whenever I, I did this exercise... What I wrote down was things you, you really would hope to hear in obituary. I wrote down that I wanted to be tied into my community. I wanted to have been loved by my family. I wanted to love my family. I wanted to love my friends. I wanted to give back to those who I cared about. That was what I wrote my obituary about. And I gave it to my wife, and I let her read it. That was part of the exercise. If you had a spouse, you had to give it to your wife, and you had to let them edit your obituary. My wife edited it, and she goes, yeah, all this stuff is good. And then she put some things at the top that said, after he became president of the United States at age 42, uh, he then went on to a successful business career. And so I realized that my wife and I had very different expectations about my life. But some of those humble expectations I had to really pour into my community around me, to serve, to serve, I remember when I wrote it that I knew it was a lie when I was writing it. I knew, I was, we'll get to that, um, kind of. So I knew it was a lie when I was writing it because I knew there was no way I was ever going down that path. I and mean, for a Star Wars illustration, I was already on the dark side, uh, and I was deep into the dark side, and I was enjoying the dark side. Uh, I was chasing the pursuits of the world, and it had already captured my heart. And even though I knew that is what my answer ought to be, that obituary is what my answer ought to be. I knew that is not what it was going to be. And so at that point in time, I ran as fast as I could in the other direction. I sprinted into the dark side, so to speak. And my faith and my career had very inverse correlations. So as my, as my career got going and went really, really well, my faith continued to wane to the point of almost non-existence. Uh, I, uh, my, from a faith standpoint, I've got a story a lot like a lot of people in here and a lot of people you're going to run into in Oklahoma. 
Uh, as a kid, I got baptized at Vacation Bible School in a small Baptist church, right? I mean, that, that probably like half of the people in here got baptized at a small Baptist church at some point in time. Uh, I got baptized at, at Vacation Bible School. My faith was important to me as a kid. Uh, as a high school student, I moved here to Oklahoma. My faith was important to me, and I never meant for my faith to quit being important to me. I never meant for that to happen. But, but it did. Slowly and surely, whatever relationship I had had with God just slipped away. There is this really, really important passage in the Bible in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, it's around, it's verse 25, but before and after is pretty important. But it pretty much says this. It says, do not neglect the gathering together, right? Do not forsake the gathering, right? And what it, what it means is as you stop... As you stop engaging with the body, as you stop engaging with God, right, you're going to suffer consequences of that. The warning that comes after that in Hebrews 10.25 pretty much says, as you stop engaging, you are going to fall away. Right? And it shows you the consequences of what happens as you fall away. And I lived out that story, but never on purpose. Uh, what happened when, late in my high school, I, I got fairly busy. I got very worried about school. Um, whenever I was in college, I never did anything bad. I wasn't a partier. I wasn't a drinker. I was a very hard worker. I worked my tail off in college. Uh, I got through college with two degrees in less than three years. And, um, and during that time, I worked close to full-time hours. Uh, to do that, to do all that, I was driven by a couple fears. One was I wanted to be able to take care of my future wife, who is my wife today. Uh, I wanted to be able to take care of her, and I desperately didn't want to be poor. I uh, just desperately was afraid of getting out of school and not having a job and being poor. And so I worked my tail off. I, I got everything done. And part of the consequences of that was I ended up working on Sundays a whole lot all through college. Uh, any spare time I had was devoted to my job or to school. And God just kind of slipped away through college. Uh, as I got into my young adult, I, I graduated from OU. I moved to Houston. I started work at the age of 21 in corporate America. And I made it my goal to climb as fast as I possibly could the ladder in corporate America. I worked my tail off. I, I wasn't out partying. I wasn't out doing anything crazy. Uh, but Sundays were normally reserved for work or for getting other things done. Uh, when my wife and I got married about a year later, she moved down to Houston. I didn't, I didn't push for us to go to church. I didn't push for us to have a strong commitment to our faith. And we just slowly, without realizing it, and I talk for me mostly, not, not as much her, but slowly just kept fading away. Just kept fading away. And I always had a good reason for a while, I wasn't engaging with God in any way. I always had a good reason, or at least I thought it was a good reason, as I went through. And, and so as I, as I kept going in my career, I kept just getting deeper and deeper into my identity being the great young business guy, right? The young up-and-comer. At the age of 24, I was doing a senior finance role in my company. At the age of 26, I got selected to be in an executive leadership program. At the age of 28, I got promoted up to an ex a future exec level. Like, I mean, I just, it was just one of those deals where that was my identity, and I was giving everything I possibly could to it. Well, at the same time, trying to be a good husband and a good father and all these things. But the consequence was I just slowly f just slipped away from my faith. 
This all came to a head one night when I was sitting on my front porch at my house uh, and I was drinking with my neighbors. And so we were, it was a Saturday night. We were sitting out, just sitting in lawn chairs in the driveway drinking. And we stayed out there a while. And um, I remember that night, just as the conversation kept going longer and longer, what kept coming out of my mouth was just more and more vile. Just, just, it wasn't me. I mean, it just wasn't, wasn't who I wanted to be. But that's just who I had become. God, ta- God tells us a lot. You hear Jesus talk about this, about the idea of you can, you can know a tree based on the fruit that it produces. It's either good fruit or bad fruit. There was nothing in my life, especially that night, that looked like good fruit. There was absolutely nothing. I hadn't said I'd stop believing in God or anything, but there was nothing in my life that demonstrated anything that looked like an act of faith. My wife came to me that night after I came inside, and she looked at me with disgust. And she just goes, who are you? Who are you? Who, who is this man that you have become? When did you start using that language? When did you start acting like that? Who are you? And I told her, I wasn't very happy with her at that moment. So, I, so later that morning, the next morning, I woke up. And I remember this because it was Easter morning. It was Easter morning. And I got my family up. And we went to a church I'd never attended before. It was this outside worship service. And it's in the middle of spring in Houston. Has anyone ever lived in Houston? How does spring feel in Houston? It's a little humid, a little hot. We're sitting outside at this worship service. And I had this massive headache. And I was nauseous. And, and I, mean, I was hungover. And I remember just thinking to myself in that moment how ashamed I felt that I was listening to the word of God being preached to me, and I was hungover. And that was never who I meant to be. That was never who I wanted to become. And so a little, little bit after that, like most good things in my life that have happened, my wife came to me, and she said, hey, listen, I'm going to start doing a women's Bible study, and I want you to join that women's Bible study with me. And we hadn't really been in church. We hadn't been doing anything. And I come to my wife. I was like, listen, one, I work during the day. I can't do that. You know, two, if you don't understand this or not, I'm not a woman. And so I don't know exactly how this is going to work out. And she goes, well, believe it or not, Blake, I've thought about that. And so she goes, listen, I already bought you the book. I'm going to do this study during the day with all these women. And at night, you and I are going to do it together. Whatever questions you have, whatever thoughts you have, I'll take back to that group of women, and we'll figure this out. But I just, I think you ought to do this. And this was a great Bible study. If you've never done this Bible study, I'd recommend it. It's called Experiencing God by Blackaby. Great. Has anyone ever done that study? It's a really, really good study. And I begrudgingly got into it. But as I got into it more and more, I was really impacted by it. That study, it tells you the same thing over and over and over again. It just repeats it into your mind in every single lesson. It says God speaks to you. The way God communicates to you is through a few simple ways. He communicates to you through his word, right? Through his word. He communicates to you through prayer. He communicates to you through the body of believers, the church. And he communicates to you through circumstances of which only the Father can control. And so I remember I started thinking about that. Well, if those are the four ways that God communicates to me, how am I hearing from God? Because I could not tell you where in my house my Bible was. I knew I had one. 
I got baptized at Vacation Bible School in, in, in Nicholasville, Kentucky, whenever I was nine. Right? There was a Bible there with my name on it somewhere, right? but I couldn't tell you where it was. My prayers at night pretty much sounded like this. It was, God, I know I'm not who I'm supposed to be, but you've given me a lot of money and a great family. Please don't take it away. That was my prayer pretty much every night. Don't take it away. Please don't take it away. My, uh, the, the idea of God communicating to you through the church, I was not engaged in church, and I had no idea what God was doing. So, I mean, if you really think about it, I had no, there was nothing in my life where God was actively communicating to me. But that Bible study made me start doing the work, right? It got me reading this. It got me praying. It got me going to church. Slowly and surely, I started hearing him. I started obeying him. Those women in that Bible study would not let me stop. I never, until to this day, I've never met a single woman other than my wife who was in that Bible study, but they wrote me notes almost every week encouraging me to keep it up. I've never met them before. And I, I so, so very much appreciate it for those women. Slowly and surely, we got into this. We started going to church. We started hearing God, started obeying God, just started doing those little bitty acts of faithfulness, those little bitty seeds. I did not understand anything, but just slowly started responding to God. And about six months or so into that, my wife and I were out on a date, and we, a very, very rare date, we have twins, and so at the time, we weren't doing much of anything together. So uh, we went on a date, and we sat there, and we both said, you know what, as we've been doing this, we feel like God's going to ask us to do something. Don't know what it is, but whatever it is, let's just say yes to it. And so we both agreed. We both felt the same way, and we agreed. Went home that night, went to bed, got up the next morning, came to work, uh, went to my office in Houston, and went into my mentor's office, and he goes, Blake, we want you to apply for a job in Melbourne, Australia. And if anyone's worked in the corporate world, you know that when they say, Blake, we would like for you to apply for a job, what it means is what? What does it mean? You're Blake, you're going to Melbourne, Australia, or you have no job, right? That's what that means. That was it was a command. You were voluntold, as we say at church, right? So we were voluntold. And so I went home to tell my wife about this because my wife was, she was committed. We were never moving international. We were never moving. She was like, I'm already too far away from my brother and my sister. We are not moving international. So I go home and I tell her, well, they want me to go to Australia. And she goes, well, I guess that's what God said he was going to want us to do. So two months later, we, we sold our house. We moved to Australia with our two three-year-olds. And I, I like to say, like, this was a big sacrifice. This was not a sacrifice for me. This was a dream job. This was a job that, like, in the corporate world, I have to remind people in the church about this. In the corporate world, you're all kind of looking at each other with knives around your back, right? I mean, just ready to fight, ready to fight for these jobs. This job was the one that the guy who won the knife fight got, right? It was the best of the best job because what I got to do was be the right hand of the CFO of the world's largest mining company, massive multinational global company that had offices all over the world. And my job was to learn what he did for a living so that I'd be ready to take his job one day and I could go into the executive pipeline. So for two years, they pretty much threw you in the fire and you either came out of the fire refined and ready to go into the executive ranks or you came out of the fire burned and ready to go in the trash. That was the meaning of this role. And I was all for it. I was, I was pumped for this. I was absolutely ready to go. And so we moved to Australia, and as we get there, I really felt like God's in the mix of this somehow. Like, I, I felt like something, we thought he was asking us to go, 
I didn't know what it was. My faith was still very, very weak. I thought maybe God was wanting, you know, the Bastons to take the gospel to the outback. You know, I was not sure. So I was thinking, I was like, well, I need God to talk to me. What's going on here? And so we went back to that Blackaby study. You know, he speaks to you through the word, through prayer, through the church, through circumstances. And so we went to a church. There was this beautiful old Gothic cathedral right, right outside my office. This, this Presbyterian church built in 1831. Uh, this class that we have here has more people in it than that church still had left. Right? But they had faithful pastors. They had a couple faithful pastors. And I went into that church, and I had a faithful pastor who had been serving for decades take me under his wing, and he taught me about God. He just taught me about God. He got me involved in a little men's group where I sat with three other guys every Wednesday morning at 7.30 over bad coffee. Bad coffee. They drank tea. I drank coffee. They had to go find the coffee for me. So we sat there at 7.30 in the morning, and we would read through this book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And if you've never read that book before, please do. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And I, I remember going to the first Bible study with these guys, thinking that we would probably cover two chapters at a time of knowing God. And I get there, and we cover two sentences. Two sentences, and they would just dive into the depths of God's word. And I realized right there, I knew nothing about God. I knew nothing, but those men did. They were all probably 30 years older than me, 40 years older than me, but those men did, and they cared, and they cared to take me under their wing and to teach me the mysteries of God. Incredible, incredible faithful men. So that time goes on for a while, for about a year, and something came up at work. So if you guys remember, this would have been 2015-ish, 2014, 2015, uh, there was a big commodities drop. You guys would have experienced it here in Oklahoma in the oil and gas business with, with oil and gas prices falling. Well, my company produced oil and gas, iron ore, copper, met coal, thermal coal, a little bit of gold, all kinds of stuff. And normally those commodities would be up and down together, and so they self-diversified. Well, at this point in time, the Chinese economy was cooling, and so all the commodities dropped at the same time. So we had this massive financial issue at the, at the business, and I was right in the middle of it trying to work it through. And part of my job was to help orchestrate the layoffs of about 30 35% of the workforce. And my job was safe. My job was safe. But I was experiencing something that just sh shook me, you know, a whole lot. My company, the way it worked is about once you went international, about every three or four years, you would move to another country. It's just the way the whole cycle worked. And so you'd be working with people who were living in Melbourne who had lived in five different places, you know, with the company. And so what we would do is we would lay people off. We would sit there and say, hey, listen, we are gracious to you. We're going to pay for you to move home. Tell us where home is and we'll move you home. And so I went home one night to our little apartment there in Melbourne, and I told Kim, my wife, I said, listen, we're in the commodities business, and we're not going to get sucked into this layoff, but when you work in the commodities business, eventually you will. And I go, so let's say 10 years from now, 15 years from now, we're living in London, or we're living in Singapore, or we're living in Chile, and they say, hey, Blake, it's your time. You've got a severance package. It's time to go home. I said, where do we tell them home is? And she goes, well, what do you mean? I go, well, I have no idea where in the world home is. And we thought about it. I was like, I grew up in Kentucky. She grew up in Tennessee. We both lived in Oklahoma for seven years through high school and college. We'd lived in Houston for a decade. 
We lived in Australia. We were probably going to be moving to either Singapore or Chile or Perth next. I was like, I don't know where home is. And it was the most weird feeling to be on the other side of the world, away from family and friends, and just not know where home was. And so in that moment, we also looked, and my kids were four. They hadn't started school yet. And we knew that once we moved to the next place, wherever it was going to be, they'd have to start school, and they wouldn't get to come back to America and see family very often. And so we go, let's just let's pick a spot in the world, and let's call it home. Where do you want home to be? Let's just, let's just pick a spot. And so we decided to pick Edmond, Oklahoma. And the reason being is because Kim's brother lived here. And we go, that's good enough reason for us. We always liked it in Oklahoma. So we bought a house here in Oklahoma. Well, I was paying $1,000 a month in Houston for storage. So you could pretty much afford a mortgage for, for that storage cost. And Kim and the kids moved back to Oklahoma. And they took all that stuff out of storage, settled in the home. And their whole idea was they're going to live here for a year, make as many relationships with family as they could with the kids for that year. I would fly back and forth as much as I could to visit. As soon as my next assignment got going, we'd all meet again. The kids would start school. We would start our life wherever that was. Uh, but we would, we would balance that for a year so that we could get a home established, have an insurance policy in place, you know, just to have that place somewhere in the world that was home, and they could make relationships. And I remember right before this whole thing had gone down, I'd been convicted by God that, that I still wasn't spending the time with him that he wanted me to. I was going to church, I was reading the Bible a little bit, I was talking to these men's group, I was engaging with this pastor, but there was still this conviction that I was, I was not hearing what he needed me to hear. And I remember responding to God during this time saying, I just don't have time. My family's over here, I'm all that they have. My wife what, couldn't work, she didn't have a visa, my kids were young. I was like, I'm doing all I can to be a good dad and a good husband, I don't have time, any more time for you. About two days after my wife and kids were in America and I was in Australia by myself, I remember God kind of revealing to me, you told me that you didn't have time for me because your wife and your kids were taking too much of your time. I took care of that. Now what's your excuse? <laughs> so I spent the next nine months in Australia by myself. No family, no friends really. Worked my tail off because that's kind of how I'm wired. I had to for the job, but I spent that time and I knew that I could do one of two things. I could waste that extra time I had or I could respond to what I felt like God was asking me to do and I could read his word, I could spend the time with him, I could figure out whatever it was he was trying to tell me and boy did he have something to tell me. That time I spent with God, I would work 13, 14, 15 hours a day and I'd come home, didn't have anything else to do and I'd read the Bible for three, four hours a night. I got through the whole Bible, fairly quick order. I'd never read the whole Bible before. I read the Bible, and every single lesson, every single lesson taught me the same thing over and over again. I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to describe it because Genesis to Revelation, I got the same lesson in every book. And it was this. It was humble yourself because you are not God. You are not God. Humble yourself. Trust in my ways, not your ways. Trust me. Your thoughts, Blake, are not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. Be still for a moment and know that I am God and you are not. Every book of the Bible 
the story of David, the story of Paul, the story of the apostle, every, every story, it was as if that message of humble yourself and know that I am God and you are not was screaming into my ears. And I have to say, when you're away from your family for a year, you're away from your kids, you don't have any friends nearby, that was a humbling experience on its own. Walking to church, into church by yourself, some of you guys know how that feels. Walking into church by yourself and sitting down is a humbling experience. I have so much empathy for people who don't have anyone. Just in that short window of time, I had to experience it. I have so much empathy for people. God humbled me. He had me working, by the way, for what may be the most intense, intelligent man in the world. And every day I went to work and realized, not only was I not God, I wasn't even smarter than that guy, right? I mean, it was just an amazing experience of, of, of what I went through during that time. About nine months into this, as I'm kind of just continually being humbled by God, my wife comes to Australia to visit me for a week. And just her, she didn't have the kids, she comes and visits me for a week, and we had a blast. I mean, just had such a good time, spending time with each other. We did all the fun things in Australia. And at the end of that week, she's packing up her bags to go back to the airport. And I just remember being so utterly sad that she was leaving. I just couldn't, in that moment, I was just broken. I just did not want my wife to leave. I hadn't seen my kids in a few months, and I just didn't want her to go. And she gets on the airplane. I'm just sitting there feeling a bit sorry for myself. And in that moment of weakness, I said, you know what? I would do anything right now to be with them. I was like, I'm going to look and see if there's any interesting finance jobs in Oklahoma City. And so I, I pulled up a phone and I pulled up an app that I don't need. I still couldn't tell you what it was to this day. And I looked up jobs in Oklahoma City. And the very first one that was on the list and the only one I looked at was Director of Finance and Administration at Crossings Community Church. And so then I thought, I was like, well, that's an odd circumstance. Uh, one, the HR guy still to this day can't tell you how that job got posted on the app that it did, which I think is a miracle in itself. Uh, but secondly, my wife and kids have been coming to Crossings Community Church. And my wife told me, she called me one day, she goes, hey, we're going to start going to Crossings. And I hate to say this because we have an elder in the room, but, but she called me, she goes, I go, Crossings? And she goes, yeah. I go, isn't that that big church there on Portland? And she goes, yeah. I go, don't go to that church. <laughs> I go, don't go to that church. It's so big. They probably don't even preach the gospel at that church. Don't go there. Find some small church where they'll actually teach you the Bible. Right? And that's fun bias that you need to know the younger generation has, by the way. So, uh, so she goes, no, 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 no. My sister Kelsey, that's her church. I want to I go with Kelsey. I want to be there with her. I go, okay, that's fine. That's fine. Just be careful. I don't know what they're teaching there. You know, and so, so she starts going with Kelsey. And I just, whenever I had, the last time I'd been in America, I had been in America for a wedding. Kelsey and her husband, Michael, had gotten married. And the wedding had been officiated by Michael's small group leader from Crossings, a man named Randy Webb. Everyone here know Randy Webb? Oh, yeah. yeah, everybody here knows Randy Webb. He knows everybody. So Randy Webb, Randy Webb had officiated the wedding. And the reason they asked him to officiate the wedding is because when Kelsey's mother passed away, when she was 17, Randy took her in, took them in, treated her like a daughter, was the church to her. Andy Roshkob, who was a student pastor at the time, was the first person on site whenever Kelsey found her mom who had passed away when she was 17 and by herself. Right, Mel Hyatt, the student pastor at the time, had, had taken her in. I saw this church be a family 
to my sister-in-law when she was in need, and I started hearing these stories. And I remember thinking to myself, well, if that's who that church is, that's an odd circumstance. So I prayed about it overnight, and I got up the next morning, and I wrote an email to David Gibson, who was our HR director at the time. And I said, hey, David, um, you don't know me. You're going to get a resume from Australia. I just want you to know one thing. I'm not crazy. Secondly, I don't want this job. I go, I don't want this job. Don't you know why I'm talking to you? I go, but I'm going to be in town for Easter. And I go, if I could, I just want to come by and have a chat with you because I feel like I need to. And so he goes, yeah, no, come on by. And so I get into a room here at the crossings with David Gibson to just talk to him. And I'm just wanting to tell him my story. Be like, I don't even know why I'm here, David, but I just feel like I need to talk to you about this job. And I get in there and I'm expecting to just see David and in walks Marty Grubbs and Terry Fakes. And so I get done. I spend about an hour and I tell Marty Grubbs, Terry Fakes, and David Gibson everything I've just told you. Everything I've just told you. And I told him, I said, if you were to offer me this job right now, I would not take it. I would not take it. I go, I don't want it. I love what I do. I'm making a lot of money, like a lot of money. And I'm not saying that arrogantly, but I was making ridiculous money for, the, for my age and everything. Uh, just things were going very, very well. I go, I don't want this job. And I go, but what I do want is for one day that if I felt convicted that God was asking me to do something, I would love to think that I had a strong enough faith that if God was asking me to do it, that I would say yes no matter the cost. But let me tell you right now, I don't have that faith today. I do not have that faith today. <laughs> so they did something that I've never had happen in a meeting before, and they go, Blake, we want to pray for you. And so Terry, Marty, David all take time, and they pray for me, and they go, we don't know what all God's doing with you, but go back to Australia, and you need to pray. So I got back on that 17-hour flight to Australia, and I spent the next three months agonizing in prayer, just agonizing in it, praying every day, God, tell me what you're doing, reading God's word, looking for wisdom. And day by day that went on, I became more convinced that God was asking me to do the one thing I did not want to do, and that was leave everything I had worked so hard for behind. My whole identity, everything about me was tied up in that job. I had it all. My, whenever I left, I had this one guy come to me. He goes, Blake, you had worked so hard to open up the oyster, and the pearl was right there, and all you had to do was take the pearl, Blake. What are you doing? Right? So, but everything, everything was tied up in that, and I became more and more convinced God was asking me to leave it behind. And I kept saying every day, no, I can't do it. I just can't do it. I hoped I would have an easy button. I really hoped that Crossings would not offer me this job. And so David Gibson called me a few months into that, and he goes, Blake, congratulations, we'd like to offer you this job. And I go, crap, <laughs> crap. So he goes, all you have to do, Blake, is you have to fly back. You have to fly back to America because it's a leadership position in the church. The elders have to interview you. And I go, okay, fair enough. I've still got an out. And so, so the Sunday before I was getting on a plane to fly back to America to interview for this job with the elders, I remember I was walking to church, and I go, God, you're going to have to make this very, very clear to me. Because if you are not 100% clear that you're asking me to do this, I'm not doing it. The cost is too high way too high. You have to be clear. Walking to church, saying this out loud, by the way, on the streets of Melbourne, there's no telling how many people thought I was crazy. I go into church, sit in the pews, and the preacher starts preaching this sermon 
on what a faithful church decision process is. Has everyone ever heard a sermon on a faithful church decision process before? No, I've never heard a sermon on this before. That day, though, he goes, I want to explain to you how you can trust whether or not a church made a faithful decision. And the story he uses was a story in the book of Acts, the story of, of Matthias. And Matthias, if anyone knows the story of Matthias, you know, you had 12 original leaders of the early church. The 12th guy killed him, you know, got killed, killed himself, Judas, right? So the early church, after the whole ordeal, is trying to select a new leader for the church. And they go through this big process where they go through the criteria, they pray through it, they determine who meets the criteria, they cast lots, which means they roll dice pretty much, which I hope Marty didn't do, but they, they cast lots. And anyway, it comes to Matthias. Matthias is the one that the early church has chosen to be the finance guy, by the way. So Matthias is the guy that the early church has chosen. And I remember sitting there in that sermon that day realizing God was talking to me, and I still didn't want to hear what he was saying. And so I go, okay, I got it. And I open up my Bible, and I go to the book of Acts where this whole story is, and I, I speed read through the book of Acts to try to figure out how Matthias knew whether or not he was going to accept the call to be a leader in the early church. Short story on that, Matthias is never mentioned in the Bible again, right? He's never mentioned in the Bible again. And it hit me at that moment that God had spoken through his people. He had spoken through that church. They had gone through a faithful process, trusting in his will, and they had said, we need you. And at that point in time, it was like God himself was saying, I am asking you to do this, Matthias. And if he was going to be faithful, he had no choice but to say yes. And in my ears, in that moment, I can still remember it because I get goosebumps, to quote Gene Carl's word, I get goosebumps thinking about it. I hear, why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you do not do what I say? I knew Without, without any doubt, God was asking me to leave it behind. I didn't know why, but he was asking me to leave it behind and just to trust in him. He had prepared me that entire year. Blake, you are not God, I am. Trust in my ways, not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Be still, know that I am God, you are not, Blake. And then he told me, why are you going to call me Lord if you do not do what I say? Jesus was my Savior at the moment, but he was not my Lord because I was not going to do what he said. And I sat there and I realized this was my chance, my one time in life. Was I actually going to be a Christian or not? Was I going to follow what I knew was a command of God or not? Was I going to trust in him to be Lord or was I going to trust in myself to be Lord? And I wish I could say that was an easy decision to make. Long story short, I wouldn't be here if I didn't actually accept, you know, and trust in, in him to be Lord. But it was very, very hard to do. I came back and interviewed with the elders. And I remember one of the elders asked me a question, what would, what would keep me from taking this job? And I remember saying that it would be temptation. I was going to get back on a plane for 17 hours and tell one of the most important men in the world that I was leaving all of his mentorship and tutelage and all the money and all the 
everything that came with it, and I was going to go work for a church in Oklahoma City. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm not going to have the guts to say that to that man. And, and so for 17 hours on a flight back to Australia, I practiced my speech. 17 hours, that speech over and over and over again. And he was incredibly gracious. It all worked out really well. God provided in a way, because I think he knew how little my faith was at the moment, he provided for me in ways that I just can't imagine. He gave me a wife who was willing to leave behind the money and the vacations, the, the, the lifestyle, the trips, just everything. She was willing to leave it behind. She trusted me that I was making a faithful decision. He gave me family who moved back to Oklahoma. My dad and mom moved back to Oklahoma. You guys know my dad. He's in Bible study. He's on Zoom right now. He gave me friends. He gave me mentors. He gave me a church. I, I accepted the job at the church without knowing what they were going to pay me. I, I, I didn't know. I didn't know that churches paid people, to tell you the truth. I, you guys could have got me for free. I thought I was going to pretty much raise my own money, which, which is a strategy I'm thinking about. But it's a, it's, I, thought, I, I, just, I, just, I didn't think people at churches made anything. And so I remember David going, we, we don't want you to lose your home and pay me enough where I could keep my family in my home. And then the first year I was here, our kids were in the school. We didn't know how we were going to afford that. Some guy I've never met before calls up Marty and says, I heard about this guy who came from Australia. I'm going to pay for his kid's school this year. I just, everything, everything I was worried about, God took care of. It just took care of. And I, and I just can't begin to tell you how thankful I am that when I had the choice to say, am I going to be Lord or are you going to be Lord? I trusted in this mysterious, majestic God that I had so underestimated in my life to say, you are Lord. A lot of people I talked to from back in my business days, they assume I did this because I was trying to get out of the rat race, that I was trying to avoid the hard work, that I was looking for an easier way of life. And it's hard to explain that that's an absolute lie. <laughs> Nothing about this transition has actually been easier. Nothing has been easier. It's, on the contrary, things have actually been a lot harder, but in different ways. I want to make sure I explain this. When you're running away from God, when you're living a transient life, you're not experiencing things that are real. You're running away from relationships and community you're, you're moving countries every three or four years. There's no roots in the ground. You aren't experiencing the real, the pain, the joy, the sadness, the sorrows. You're numb to all of that because you're transient of it all. G.K. Chesterton has a quote, and just indulge me for a moment. I want to read you this quote. He says, If we were tomorrow morning snowed up in the street in which we live, we would step subtly into a much larger and much wilder world than we have ever known. And it's the whole effort of the typically modern person to escape from the street in which he lives. First, he invents modern hygiene and goes to England. Then he invents modern culture and goes to Florence. Then he invents modern imperialism and goes to Timbuktu. He goes to the fantastic borders of the earth. He pretends to shoot tigers. He almost rides on a camel. And in all of this, he is still essentially fleeing from the street in which he was born. 
And of this flight, he is always ready with his own explanation. He says he is fleeing from his street because it's dull. He's lying. He is really fleeing from his street because it's a great deal too exciting. It's exciting because it's exacting. It's exacting because it's alive. We can visit Venice because to him the Venetians are only Venetians. The people on his street are men. He can stare at the Chinese because to him the Chinese are a passive thing to be stared at. If he stares at the old lady in the next door garden, she becomes active. He is forced to flee, in short, from the too stimulating society of his equals, of free men, perverse, personal, deliberately different from himself. The street in Brixton is too glowing and overpowering. He has to soothe and quiet himself among tigers and vultures, camels and crocodiles. What we do here, what the church is, what this body of believers is, is real. It's the most real thing in this world. And it's not easy. It takes everything from you. It takes... It, it, to put your trust in Christ and to follow Christ, if you truly follow Christ, it will, it will result in you giving yourself to everyone, giving all of yourself, pouring into others. And what comes with that is pain, suffering, but also great joy. Nothing about this has been easy, but it's been glorious. It's been the best thing I can imagine because of how hard it is. Because of you all. Five years ago, I would have never known. There was so much I didn't know. All I knew was that God was asking me to do one thing. Leave that, come here. That's all he had explained to me. He didn't tell me everything else that was going on. I had no idea. I had no idea. I didn't know that I was going to have this guy named Terry Fakes who was going to pretty much teach me the entire Bible in like six months. right? I mean, I had no idea I was going to have mentors in my life like Terry and Marty and Lance and Cole. I didn't know I was going to be a part of this Bible study. I came here just to do something with my dad. He and I had a great time getting to sit back at that table right there and just enjoy reading God's Word. And then Cole Fakes makes me come up here and start subbing every now and then. And then he leaves and Lance leaves and he's like, hey, somebody has to teach this thing. I didn't know I was going to be doing this. I had no idea the joy I would have from getting to know and love you guys. Right? I had no idea. Matter of fact, I just talked to you, I just enrolled in seminary so I could be a better pastor for you all, right? So it's just, it's one of these, because I feel like you deserve it, the church deserves it, but it's one of those, I had no idea what all God was going to do, still don't, there's no telling, but I didn't need to. All I needed to know at that point in time was God was saying, trust me, you are not God, I am, I am good, I love you. Give it up. What I've got in store for you is so much greater than what you had in store for yourself. Trust me. Know that I'm God and you are not. I started with my obituary and so I want to end today with my obituary. And if I had to rewrite, if I had to go back and do that exercise right now, I would write an obituary and it would be a whole lot shorter, but I think it would be a lot more profound. If I had to write it, it would say this. Blake Baston lived a life that demonstrated two basic truths that were unquestioned reality within his soul. Jesus was his Savior, and Jesus was his Lord. My question to you guys today is this, and I want you to take it seriously when I ask you this question. 
if you were to have a conversation with Christ right now, and he were to look at you and would he say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you do not do what I say? In America, especially in Oklahoma, it is so easy to make Jesus Christ our Savior, but forget that we are not just called to be Christians, we are called to be followers of Christ, to be disciples. Disciples mean He is Lord. And just like Ortberg said this Sunday, if you, didn't, if, you, if you missed that message, please go back and watch that message. The narrow way to the narrow gate comes when you make Him Lord. And you know that He is Lord when you do what He says. If at any point, if you are convicted by that at all, know that's a good thing. Take it as a loving, a loving warning from God to say, I love you too. I want this personal relationship with you too. Humble yourself. Know that I am God. Trust in my ways, not your own ways. Be still for a moment. Know that I am God. Make me Lord. Make me Lord. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for these men. I thank you for what you've done in my life and my family's life. You have been gracious to us. I cannot imagine a life without you. I cannot imagine a life where I'm not getting to serve you. And that was not a reality five years ago. Lord, I love these men. Everyone in the room, everyone on Zoom. May you lead them. If they have not made you Lord, will you show them the way? Whatever it is that they're needing to give up, that they're holding on to too tightly, that they know that you are telling them right now to let go of and to trust in you, will you give them that strength and will you pave the way just like you did for me and continue to do for me? We love you, Lord. We trust in you as our Savior and our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.